Lord, as we'll be reminded over and over again today, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. May that be our rock. May that be our hope that we can trust in you that all the other things will come and they will look great in their time, but they will fade. But you will be resplendent in glory for all eternity. May we anchor our lives on you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, today, as you know, Americans celebrate the 245th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. This declaration, though, led to five years of war until General Cornwallis surrendered in Yorktown in 1781. And yet, while the 13 colonies were now free, we then entered the challenge of governing ourselves. The initial Articles of Confederation had some unforeseen problems with raising funds for the government, for establishing a navy so our merchant ships wouldn't be robbed by pirates, by being able to take care of international and even interstate trade, that there is a common monetary system. The final straw signaling a need for change was Shays' Rebellion. So this then led to the Constitutional Convention and the Constitution being written, and then, along with other changes, having a presidency, and then having President George Washington as the first president. Now, in that history, you could pick many dates that matter, but let's say we begin with the Boston Massacre, so-called, in 1770. Well, from 1770 to 1789, there were many changes in our country. We went from colonies to revolutionaries to a free country and then to a new form of government. And at times, I'm sure it seemed that chaos seemed to reign more than any person or even any ideals of a nation. And I'm sure some even wondered, was this freedom worth it? Did it only bring more chaos than we had before? Well, as we will see in our verses in front of us, Chaos is reigning in Israel. Chaos is reigning after the leadership of Jeroboam. Just to paint the context, you'll remember we are after King Saul, King David, Solomon, and then the nation splits to Jeroboam with the ten tribes in the north and Rehoboam and the two tribes in the south. And Jeroboam, we looked at him, and then the author turned and looked at the three kings in the south after that, and now we turn back and we're going to see that there will be six kings in the north during the reign of King Asa in the south. And all the drama and intrigue you might expect in an overly sensationalized soap opera gets played out on these pages. We see assassinations. We see domineering queens. We see drunken parties. All of this going like the prophet Ahijah said, because of Jeroboam, your kingdom after you will be like a reed swaying in the water. So this morning we will look at six kings. If you have a bulletin, you can see kind of laid out the kings and then what I think the big picture is of each one. And the first one is Nadab. And we see from him that God's judgment comes. Then we have King Basha and Elah. And really they're just Jeroboam 2.0 or Jeroboam all over again. Then we have Zimri and Omri who have a weak reign, both intense of that word there and an irrelevant dynasty builder. And then we end with Ahab and the degradation of sin. 
since this is a longer portion, we'll read each section when we get there. So let's begin in chapter 16. We'll read verses 25 through verse 32, or through verse 31. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Basha, the son of Ahijah, the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. For Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin, and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the King of Israel? And so here... We're right after Jeroboam and Nadab, his son, is reigning in his place. But he only reigns for two years. And he continues just like his dad did in all of the same sins. And yet we then read of this new character, this man named Basha. He's from the tribe of Issachar. And he conspires against Nadab. And it all began with Nadab being part of a siege against the Philistines in Gibbethon. And yet that's actually the end of the story too. We're not told anything else. There's a siege, and at the siege, he kills him. And he also kills all of the descendants of Jeroboam. Well, how did he do it? What was Basha's upbringing like? Had Jeroboam slighted his family, and this is now his revenge? Why is there no more information? Well, there's no more information because this is all the information we need. It may not be all the information we want, but it's all the essential ingredients boiled down because what needs to be conveyed is not how it happened, but why it happened. And we're told very clearly in verse 30, it happened because this was according to the word of the Lord. This happened because Jeroboam and then Nadab, like him, rebelled against the Lord and they sinned. And so God is bringing judgment upon them. In fact, there's an interesting word it talks about in verse 30 how Jeroboam provoked the Lord. Now, we all know what it is to provoke someone. It's when you get your pencil and you keep tapping. And you know, you can just see their shoulders getting tighter. It's the kicking of their chair until they blow up. It's the calling them that name that you know that they hate as you just see their internal pressure blowing, growing, growing, growing until they lose it. And that is what Jeroboam and his descendant Nadab did. They kept poking, 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 poking. And though God is slow to anger, though God is long-suffering, though God delays his judgment, eventually they poked one too many times and their time ran out. Judgment now comes, the very judgment God promised. And yet sadly, people often confuse God's delayed judgment with thinking God won't judge. Yet the fact that God, and sometimes humans don't judge or give punishment right away, is not because they're not going to, but because they're wanting people to repent. They're wanting them to change. And yet people misunderstand God. 
We see this in 2 Peter 3, 3-4. It says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? I mean, Jesus said he's going to come back, and it's been 2,000 years. Where is he? That, it's not true. Don't worry about it. You can live however you want. And yet he will come again. His delayed judgment is not the removal of judgment. He is leaving time for you and me to turn from sin, to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And so will we heed his words of hope before we are under his word of judgment. And yet, people don't heed, and they are foolish. And we see such folly in Basha and his son, for though we now have different names, it's basically Jeroboam and Nadab all over again. We see this in chapter 15, verse 32, through chapter 16, verse 14. Let's read God's word. And there is war between Asa, that's the king of Judah, and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Terzah. And he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha, saying, since I exalted you out of all the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha in his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the fields, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Basha slept with his fathers and was buried at Terzah. And Elah, his son, raised reigned in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands and being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel in Terzah, and he reigned two years. But his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. When he was at Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Terzah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned in his place. <coughs> and he began to reign... As soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of all his relatives or his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Basha and the sons of Elah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And so here we begin with the description of Basha's reign by noting that the war is continuing with Asa and that he reigned for 24 years. And yet he continues the same path. He continues to lead Israel in sin. And thus God came to him through a prophet Jehu and rebuked him and 
very similar language to what was used against Jeroboam. If you go back and read chapter 14, you'll see at times almost identical phrases. And both prophetic speeches began with basically noting, look, you weren't the descendant, you weren't the heir to the throne, and yet I brought you up. I brought you up from nothing. So shouldn't you be grateful to me, the God who gave you the kingdom? And yet instead, both of them served other gods, and they provoked God. And because they didn't live in response to God's goodness to them, therefore God will judge them, and their house and their descendants will be completely taken away. Basha completely destroyed Jeroboam's family, and we'll soon read of that happening to Basha's house. Not only will their kingdom be taken away, but they will die in dishonor. In the city, they won't receive a proper burial, but dogs will come and eat their bodies. In the fields, they won't be buried. The birds will come. In both cases, though, they were seeking to secure honor and blessing and life in their own hands, and all they did was end up securing their demise. As God says in 1 Samuel 2.30, Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And God is showing that here in these lives. And then the author gives the summary statements of Basho's reign. Yet it adds that his punishment was not only because he revoked God by sinning with idolatry, but also because he destroyed Jeroboam's house. What? I thought God wanted Jeroboam's house. Didn't God promise that Jeroboam's house would be destroyed? So didn't Basha do a good thing? Why is he being punished for doing the very thing God said would happen? Well, yes, Basha's actions caused something good to happen, but that does not mean Basha himself did a good thing. Now, this can be hard for us to grasp, but let's pause and think about it. Imagine you go to Walmart, and as you're there, you see a child throwing a fit. They are so angry that their parent will not get them ice cream, and they just lose it, and they're throwing a temper tantrum. Well, if you go up and take the child by the hand and walk them to the bathroom, and you get to the seat of the situation, I would say that you have sinned. Well, wait, 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 didn't that child deserve punishment? Well, yes, it did. But was I or were you the person to do that? You know, just because something good needs to be done doesn't mean we are the people that need to do it. It's not always our role. To bring this to our story, nowhere are we told that Basha was told by God to do this. While it should happen and would happen, it was not Basha's position. And we talked about a similar thing last week. James 1, 19-20 says, Be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we said last week that sometimes people mistake people's behavior changing due to their anger as though that is a good thing. And we can even act that way. Well, look, look, you know, just sometimes I really got to let them have it, and then they change. That's what causes them to get better. So isn't it okay? Well, no. Just because there are good things that happen, that does not justify what you have done. The ends do not justify the means. Let's consider another example that challenges us. Vengeance. 
Romans 12, 19, 19 through 21 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But that person deserves to be punished. Well, yes, that's why you need to give them vengeance. But just because they deserve it doesn't mean you are in the position to do it. Yes, at times we should seek justice. We should seek through the right means for them to receive punishment for what they've done. But we are to not seek personal vengeance. Seeking justice, yes, but only through the means God has ordained. So thus, to come back to Basha, yes, something good happened, God's judgment, but Basha did not have an excuse to do that since it was not his role. He did it in a sinful way. You know, in God's court, a legitimate argument is not, they did it first. So then we read of the end of Basha, and then we read of his son, Elah, and yet he's just like Nadab. He only reigns two years, and yet, tragically, unlike Nadab, who is at least in battle, Elah dies at a drunken party. Not just at a drunken party, it's an inside job. One of his leading commanders, one who leads half the chariots, Zimri, comes and does it. Well, how did Zimri do it? Why did he do it? How did, who is Zimri? Again, all we know is that Zimri came in and he murdered him. We then have the usual summer statements, but it's added that Zimri also killed Bosch's family and friends. Again, because of God's word through the prophet. And so while chaos seems to be reigning, while we've gone through three kings in a short time, God's word is being fulfilled. And yet, while Zimri seemed to have secured the kingdom, he and Omri are known only for having a weak reign and being an irrelevant dynasty builder. We see that in chapter 16, verse 11, through chapter 16, verse 28. Um, uh, we'll begin verse 15, sorry, of chapter 16. So in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Terzah. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the troops who were encamped heard it and said, Zimri has conspired, and he has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with him, and they besieged Terzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house, and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Walking in the way of Jeroboam. And for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibni the son of Ganath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath. 
So Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shimmer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shimar, the owner of the hill. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. So here we have the shortest reign of any king of Israel. Zimri reigns for one week or seven days. So Zimri assassinated Ela and all his friends, but his plan wasn't well thought out enough because he hadn't secured the support of the people, or even the army, before he did this. And so the army, once again back in Gibbethon, besieging the Philistines, they hear of it and they go, we want Omri to be king. And so they give up their siege in Gibbethon and they go lay siege to their own capital in Terza, with Zimri hiding inside of it. Well, Zimri is a battle commander. He recognizes when the battle's lost. And when he sees the city is taken, he burns the palace with himself in it. It's almost as though, well, if I can't be king, you're not going to get the palace either. Thus, Zimri's weak reign ends, and though he removed Bosch's line, he really achieved little else. In fact, it appears his reign would have just continued along the same line because we're told he is condemned for continuing in the sins of Jeroboam. Now, we just read of Omri coming, but yet there's this other competitor Tibni, the son of Ganoth. Eventually, those who wanted Omri, they overcome those who wanted Tibni, and Tibni died. Well, did they overcome them in battles? Was it public speeches that swayed the masses? Was it rock, paper, scissors matches? Was Tibni murdered? Or was he older and sick health? And as his health declined, the people said, Oh, we really want Omri. We're not told. We are not given answers to many of the questions we would perhaps ask. But we are told how long it takes. Because if you look at verse 15, it says, Zimri began in the seven, his reign in the 27th year of Asa. So 27th year when Zimri began reigning. And then in verse 23, Omri begins in the 31st year. So this Omri-Tibni battle, though it's short in words in the Bible, was not short in terms of conflict. It took four years. And Omri, being an army commander, he quickly shores up his defenses. He realizes, I could easily take Terza in a couple days. This is no place to be king. So he goes and he buys Shemer, which will become Samaria. And this was a well thought out location. Samaria sits almost 300 feet above the surrounding area, giving it a great lookout for oncoming enemy. As well, Military commanders always want the higher ground in conflict. It's easier to defend higher ground. And this will be such an important location because not only is it secure in regards to military protection, but it sits at the crossroads for trade. Omri will set up quite a dynasty. You can go, at least commentators you can go, and look up old Assyrian documents 
And even over 150 years after Omri's death, the nation of Israel is still considered by these other nations as the house of Omri. He built a massive dynasty. And yet, how much are we told about that? Not at all. Because it doesn't matter. All we're told is the most important thing is that he continued, verse 25 tells us, in the sins of Jeroboam. In fact, not only does he continue, but he does more evil than anyone else. Now, I wonder this morning, as I've read, or maybe if you have read these, you thought, you know, Jeremy, you could have like kind of skipped the pattern over and over. Wasn't he having the rest of his reign in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? I mean, isn't like the important stuff, like a sentence or two within these long descriptions, and we could kind of get rid of the boring reading? I mean, my English teacher told me, avoid repetition, mix it up a little bit so you can realize and get to the key stuff. Why don't we maybe add some more historical details? Now, these people probably did some fascinating feats during their reigns. And yet, while those could be maybe more scintillating in regards to a story, they would miss the main issue. What's the main issue? Well, it's very clear. The main issue for every single king is, did you trust and obey God, or did you doubt and live your own way? Everything else is basically irrelevant. Yes, it's not completely irrelevant, because it still mentions some other details, but the key of every single reign is, did they trust and obey God, or did they doubt and live their own way? You see, these sections were not written to bore us, but they do get a point across. You maybe are driving your children to your parents or grandparents for Christmas Day, and as you pull in the driveway, you say, I don't care what you get, you need to say thank you. Even if you hate it, you need to put a smile on your face and say, Thank you, Grandma. I love black socks. These are, these are the black socks I've been wanting. And they go, We know. You told us 20 times today on the drive up here. Well, why do we tell them 20 times? Because it's so important that we have to say it over and over. Why does it keep having the same refrain over and over? Because it's so important and we keep missing it. You know, the Bible tells us over and over, what really matters in life is how you live in relation to God. But we keep caring more and more about other things. And we see that, we see the folly of not living for God, not just by the way it was written, but even how they lived. Consider Elah and Zimri. I mean, Elah was king. Imagine you could say, I'm king of a country, and yet what is he known for? He threw pretty good parties. He threw such good parties... He even got killed at one. Wow, what a reign. What a life. I mean, what a thing to have written after you. I could throw a good party. Irrelevant. Or consider Zimri. Zimri finally achieved maybe what he'd always wanted. I am now king. I have secured the kingdom for one week. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of God abides forever and maybe you can get the thing you've wanted you've wanted this all your life and you get it there's no guarantee you'll even live through the end of this day to enjoy it sports fans who are older may remember in the late 1980s to early 1990s an incredible athlete named Bo Jackson he was great at baseball 
and great at football. One of the few people in the last few decades who could play both professionally. He won the Heisman Trophy, the given to the best, we'll just say offensive player, in college football. And he was then playing for the Kansas City Royals and Oakland Raiders at that time. Or I don't know where they were at that time. The Raiders, we'll say at that time. Football team. He looked like he had an incredible career in front of him. Until a routine tackle and his hip felt weird and he never played again. You know, he looked like he had it all forever until just a normal play and it ended. Just imagine, just think for a second, your wildest dream comes true. You get what you would love to have. Maybe you're the most attractive person. You're the most sought after for your wisdom or your baking or you have all the power that you desire or you have all the possessions you want. You'll only have them for a time. You will always be one heartbeat away from losing them. And so Jesus in Scripture warns us over and over, don't live for the treasures that can be stolen that moths can eat, that rust can take away, but rather live for what will last. Jesus describes those who have come to see what he is like this way. He says in Matthew 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. There's many ways we can describe a Christian, but Jesus is saying here, one is saying, the Christian is the person who says, I've seen everything else, and I realize none of those are any treasure worth the treasure of knowing God. I'll sell everything for that, to be in the kingdom of heaven, the only kingdom that will last. We also see that in Omri. We see the folly of living for anything but God in Omri, because he became someone who was known by the greatest empires as the ruler of a country. He built a dynasty. And yet, who knows Omri now? People reading the Bible and people doing archaeological research. In fact, he's in a list of kings that many people go, boring. I don't know if I'll just kind of hit the highlights on that reading section. Get, get to, we're almost at Ahab. Okay, that's going to get interesting now. Let's get past, who are these people? Oh, they're irrelevant. And yet, think about Omri. He was king. He held the highest position. You know, we think he and his life are boring. And yet he was one of the most important people in the world. And I think these boring lists, I put that in quote, serve as a major warning to us. A warning that the position or the prominence or the power that we crave will ultimately amount to nothing. You know, probably in a hundred years from now, all of us will be dead. What will really matter then? Will it matter if we had 20 or 20,000 here on this morning? Will it matter how quick people came to do your bidding and follow what you said? Will it matter how much people at your workplace or community came to you and said, Oh, we need, no one else can do this but you. I, I never ask anyone else, you're the only person who can fix my problems. I need you. You are the person I need. Will it matter whether people 
wanted your advice or thought you were essential to their community. Now, I'm not trying to denigrate any of that because it is an honor that God gives us to have power, to have people who respect your skills or ability. Yet the question is, for whom are you doing all that? If you're doing all that for yourself, then one day you will either not be remembered or you'll just be another name on a boring list of history. But if you do all of that, and you use anything you've been given for God, then it will be remembered and rewarded for all eternity. And to twist this slightly, what about for our children and grandchildren? What are we hoping for? You know, people pour thousands of dollars into what they think is important for their children, whether that be education or athletics or artistic abilities. And there's nothing wrong with desiring our children to excel, but then we have to ask, for what purpose? Let's say they do become the greatest in any one of those realms. A hundred years from that, will that have really mattered, let alone in eternity from now? And you see, the problem is that sin is lying to us. It's saying, look, if you can get this, life is worth it. And yet, over and over, God is saying, well, what matters is the fact that you lived and died and what happened in the middle? Did you trust and obey me or did you doubt and go your own way? And the problem as well is not only do we not get the joy that sin promises, but it actually over time degrades us. And we see that lastly with Ahab and the degradation of sin, verses 29 through 34. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of of none. So here Ahab comes to the throne and he is the seventh king in northern Israel during the reign of Asa. And yet while there have been many kings, Ahab will have a longer reign, 22 years, and yet like father, like son. And Ahab decides to go even farther than any of the other kings in their sin. You know, if it hadn't been enough to worship these other gods, he then went and married Jezebel the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. You know, last week we discussed the importance that God's word places on us marrying someone who is a believer, someone who's going to encourage us towards godliness. But marrying Jezebel was not marrying someone who is apathetic to God. Marrying Jezebel was marrying someone who was diametrically opposed to God. Her dad's name, Ethbal, means Baal exists. And the Sidonians were known for their worship of other gods. So Ahab, by going and marrying her, 
is going in the exact opposite direction that God wants him. It would be like hiring the president of the Free Border Association to lead and arresting border crossers. It makes no sense. You're hiring the wrong person. If you want to secure your borders, you get someone who cares about that. If you want to honor God, you don't marry someone who's going to lead you in the opposite direction. Not only does it make no sense, but God warned them in Deuteronomy 7 not to do this because it would lead them to worshiping other gods. So Ahab then goes, he makes an altar for Baal, he makes a temple for Baal, and he even makes an idol, an image of the goddess Asherah. And in doing so, he far surpasses the kings that were before him. You see, sin never has enough. It always says, well, just a little more. Just a little more. Just a little more, because it's never satisfied in the long run. And then to top this all off, Heel of Bethel relays the foundation of Jericho, we read in verse 34. And he does this even though Joshua 6.26 warned, Joshua laid an oath on them at the time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Now it's unclear if Heel knew this would happen and actually sacrificed his two children so that he could have the city, or if his children died after the fact because of the curse coming true. But really, either option is not good. The first option is saying he knowingly chose possessions over human life and didn't care at all about God's word. The second option is, well, they so not cared about God's word, they didn't even know that it said this at all. And yet, tragically... We see the same degradation in our own country. We now have people who sell shoes with satanic symbology and blood and they sell out before you can even hit the markets. We rejoice. Not just do we allow, we rejoice at abortion. We spend a month celebrating actions that God hates. And yet, we always got to be careful. It's not them out there. There's also the sin in here. You know, many of you know, 50 years ago, churches were Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and most churches have trouble getting people to show up Sunday morning. Many Christians have a better grasp of the fine details of their favorite hobby or sports team than they have any clue regarding God's word or who God is. You know, we maybe show up to churches, we show up to worship, and yet our heart is excited about all the other things that are going to happen this week or later on. We're preoccupied with all the things we get to go, see, do, and experience. And to be clear, I'm not talking about out there or out here. I'm talking about also in here. You know, we need revival. It's not just our nation, the church, I. You see, we're often using our freedom in ways that only lead to chaos. We read earlier from Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's why God gives us freedom. Not so I can then go live as I want with, well, he saved me. But we are given freedom so we might love other people. That we might give our lives for their good. And so as we get to have this wonderful day, to celebrate, 
Let's not just celebrate freedoms in our country. Let's celebrate the freedom we have in Christ that then leads us, not to chaos, but to love and serving others. Let's pray. Oh Lord, many will look at our time and wonder, what did we do with all of our freedoms? Lord, I pray that we would use them for your glory, for the good of our neighbor. Lord, we see in your word this morning, we see in our world around us that when we use our freedoms for sin, it only degrades us. It leads us into greater and greater sin, leads us farther and farther from you. And so, Lord, we ask for mercy. Lord, would you restore us? Would you restore our nation and bring revival that we might have a love for you, a love that delights in your word and submitting to it? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.